0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we take a break from election coverage to explore the power of women, identity, and speech. This month, the University of Arizona's College of Social and Behavioral Sciences held its annual lecture series. The theme was Woman Power. Today, we're featuring excerpts of two of the five lectures— you can find a link to all the talks on our website. First, we hear from UA linguist Sonja Lanehart, who examines African-American women's use of language to, quote, tell the truth and shame the devil. The following is a lightly edited and condensed version of Lanehart's lecture. You can find the full version on our website.
1: African-American women's language is not black male speech as spoken by women. And it's not white women's speech as spoken by African-American women. It represents the intersectional lives and identities of Black women who continue to talk that talk in spite of everything that tries to silence them. Black women have started loving themselves loudly and that makes some people very uncomfortable. Were we supposed to wait for you to love us? Now, African-American language has generally focused on African-American men, and in particular, teenage boys. The basic definition for African-American language that I use is language spoken by or among African-Americans. I wrote a whole book about it called The Oxford Handbook of African-American Language. And then one of my favorite authors talks about the significance of African-American language without specifically using that term. Tony Morrison. She says, the language, only the language, it's the thing that Black people love so much. The saying of words, holding them on the tongue, experimenting with them, playing with them. It's a love, a passion. The worst of all possible things could happen would be to lose that language. There are certain things I cannot say without recourse to my language. So I've played with that definition Of African-American language to tell you about African-American women's language. So in talking about African-American women's language, there are lots of ideas that we have, right? So for me, one of them is people tend to think about sort of this superhero, and there's no greater woman superhero and certainly black woman superhero than Serena Williams, the best women's tennis player, maybe the best tennis player ever on the planet. Uh, And I love this picture of her because it so represents what I think we often think of when we think about black women. And while that may be a trope that needs to be disabused, it's also a symbol of the resilience and the power of the language and community that we have. Now, other things you might think about for African-American women's language might be this idea of sort of uh, sassiness, right? Or even down to earth, right? or no holds barred, right? Uh, Or maybe even just thinking of this idea of just being direct. Black women speak their minds and they're gonna tell you what they think and you will know immediately and not have to guess. So I thought a lot about this talk and I went back and forth on how I wanted to pitch the very ideas um, that I think some, at least some some things that undergird what I think about when I think about African-American language. And in the midst of doing this, lo and behold, on October 7th, 2020, we had a vice presidential debate between Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence, where <laughs> I would say Kamala Harris displayed many of the ways African American women's language or AAWL was on full display in the midst of opposition. That opposition came from what I call in my linguistics research, a wham. A white, cishet, uh, and male uh, person who decided that they were going to be the dominant voice in that room, despite being in a debate in which, by its nature, at least two people get to talk. And by now, we probably all have seen and we all remember Kamala Harris repeatedly having to say, Mr. Vice President. I am speaking. So Kamala Harris is every Black woman who has tried to stay calm while she was being lied about. She's every Black woman who has had to remain silent while an unqualified white man shouted over them. She's every Black woman who has gritted her teeth to hide frustration because she knows eyes are on her, judging her every move. She's every Black woman who's had to grin and bear abuse while others just watched. Kamala Harris is every black woman who smiles through their suffering of fools and injustice. And that brings me to the first aspect that I wanna talk about for African American women's language, laughter. So black women laugh in a variety of ways to express a range of emotions. It's not just, oh, I'm feeling great. It's a wonderful joke you just made, or I'm so happy. Right? There are different types of laughter, and that laughter can underlie a range of emotions, such as I'm thinking about Zora Neale Hurston's quote. Sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it doesn't make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can any deny themselves the pleasure of my company? It's beyond me. You kind of see the smirk. That's on her face, right? Yeah, she's thinking I'm all that, but you're missing out. There's an article written on the hidden message in Kamala Harris's smile. Right up my alley for talking about African American women's language, because I know that la- laughter for Black women signifies a range of other things. And I thought about some of the people who have these smiles, so I captured uh, Chimamanda Adichie, who's giving a sort of Yeah, I'm going to be nice and polite right now. And then there's a full-throated laugh, right, um, that we have coming from Maya Angelou. And then I've had the pleasure of meeting Nikki Giovanni. And I can say that any smile from Nikki Giovanni should be one that you think about with suspect motives in the sense that her smiles belie a range of emotions (laughs) that you may or may not get. And part of that has to do with this idea of laughter as signifying from African-American women. And part of understanding that is being acculturated into that discourse community. Uh, And one of the reasons that I talk about this as African-American women's language is I want you to know that I'm focusing on women and not girls or children. Because the language that African-American girls use is a precursor to what they will get to as women but they go through some different stages. For them, laughter may just be laughter, but when you're a grown woman, and fill in the blank in between those, uh, your laughter becomes a little bit more complex. It overcomes the childish games, right? That full-throated laughter. It overcomes, the, it's used to overcome all of the pain and hurt that black women have to experience. When you're talking about a situation where I think about with my grandmother, who for a lot of her life was raising her kids as a single parent, uh, in some cases escaping physical abuse, uh, in many cases being on her own because her parents died when she was young and she went from sibling to sibling, had to drop out in the third grade and worked as a domestic all of her life. Uh, my mom often talks about how she doesn't know the pain that my grandmother suffered because there were just things that she wouldn't say, but my grandmother still laughed. She cried sometimes, but she mostly laughed and that's the laughter I remember, but I also understand the pain that was behind that laughter sometimes. And I think about that for these women and the lives that they have lived or are living and the experiences that they've had as being black women and understanding. The differences in those laughs to understand the pain or the joy or the hurt or the pride or whatever it may be in just a slight hint of difference in the laughter that they express.
0: You're listening to a presentation by UA linguist Sonja Lanehart about the power of black women's language as part of the fall SBS lecture series.
1: The next idea that I want to talk about in African-American women's language, is this idea of little. So little was talked about by Gwendolyn Eder Lewis in a series of interviews that she did with, I believe it's probably about 100 women or more, black women or more, who had accomplished great things. But even though they'd accomplished great things, they always seemed to subjugate their particular achievements to someone else. Mostly their fathers or other men. Uh, so, even for women who say, like Mae Jemison in going into outer space, would think about this as that's a little thing I did. And so, there's this idea of it's, oh, thank you for the love, but I'm shrinking, shrinking underneath it because it's just a little thing and I really didn't do this that much and it's just kind of small. So We'll move on with that. But this idea that what we as Black women do and how we use that in our language to sometimes diminish what we've accomplished, to diminish what we've done, in order oftentimes to hold up others, and in particular, Black men. And I love Black men. Uh, my father's a Black man. My brother's a Black man, right? But sometimes... When we, talk, when we look at black women and their language, this is what happens, that they have been trained to give to community first. And I think if we look back at why I'm here now and what I do, what I do, and thinking about these pictures of ancestral women for me, that in the end, it's about us coming together as women but more so, it seems that we use our ways of being and our ways of discourse in service to the larger community. And sometimes in doing that, that diminishes the voice that we have, that we, the, the accomplishments that we've made as black women because we do it in service of, right? And we can certainly see that over the course of history in looking at civil rights movements where you probably know Malcolm and Martin, but you may not have even heard of Shirley Chisholm uh, or a host of other women, a host of other Black women. Uh, I also think about Girl Trek. Girl Trek is one of the largest health, black women's health organizations that has ever existed. Their goal, at least the primary goal for now, is to get one million black women moving in the same direction. Because when black women get together and do things, they do great things even when they think about it as just a little something that they did. Now, I know you're probably very familiar with this idea about Black women's language and Black women and anger, right? There's this trope of the angry Black woman. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference. A mentor of mine, uh, after, as I was talking, at the, end, at the end asked, was I concerned that I would be viewed as an angry black woman. And I said, well, I think I have every right to be angry, but I don't think that I walk in anger. I think that anger, well, you know what? Maybe it's just kind of like the Hulk, right? I'm a big sci-fi fan. And in part of that, I'm a big Marvel fan as well. And if you remember in the last Avengers movie or the series of Avengers movie, Hulk says, the trick is he's always angry, right? So I think you can have anger, but it's controlled. And I think that anger is used in order to move things forward and to actually expand the conversation. And I can't think of any people who expand the conversation more as black women than Toni Morrison, Nina Simone, and Michelle Obama. Toni Morrison, from the quote that I used earlier, has used her literature and her platform, or at least she did before passing, to move a conversation about Black people in the history of America and Black people currently in America. And she used it in her voice. She used it in her African-American women's language in the descriptions that she used and the characters that she created. And she centered Black women. Nina Simone, another woman who was fighting in spite of all of the things that she was going through. Um, she had mental disease that was undiagnosed for quite some time. Uh, she was in problematic relationships. but She had a message. She had music. And she expressed that. And there's this idea, right, right? She's out there performing. But that anger is underneath, which comes from all of the things that Black women have been told they can't do.
0: That was UA linguist Sonja Lainhart talking about the power of black women's language in a lecture series organized by the University of Arizona's College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. You can find a link to the full-length version of her talk on our website. This week we're featuring excerpts of two lectures from the University of Arizona's College of Social and Behavioral Sciences annual lecture series. Now we'll hear from the talk by UA political scientist Lisa Sanchez, discussing why Latinas are rare in politics and the quiet power they hold to create social change. The following is a lightly edited and condensed version of the lecture. You can find the full version on our website.
2: When I was approached about this lecture, I was very excited. The topic of Latinas, politics, and power was right in my wheelhouse. As a Hispanic woman myself, what I will share with you today calls to mind not only my own identity, but the identities of my mother, my sisters, my cousins, my aunts, and my two little girls. I'll admit that as I prepared this lecture, I experienced increased anxiety about the topic. I began to struggle because there was so much I wanted to share in such a short period of time. How was I gonna do it? What would I keep? What would I cut? What did I wanna leave you with at the end of this talk? Finally, inspiration struck, as it's apt to do, in the unlikeliest of places, the wisdom of a three-year-old, or perhaps not so unlikely if you know my three-year-old Maria. One night before bed, as I was putting her in her pajamas, my daughter looked me dead in the eyes and said, Mom, I want to be the tiny kitty. Frazzled after a long day of work and house chores, I said, okay. But she said it again, and she continued to repeat it until I finally said with as much conviction as I could muster, Okay, you're my tiny kitty. Adorable grammatical errors aside, she was demonstrating to me in a very simple way the common problem of marginalized groups. The ability to feel powerful enough to engage in acts of self-determination without ascription and permission from the mainstream. In simpler terms, she didn't feel that her declaration of her identity as a tiny kitty was realized until mom ascribed it to her. Much the same process has occurred among Latinos in the last 50 years. Indeed, until 1970, the United States federal government counted individuals of Spanish speaking origin as white. If you know a little bit about being Latino pre 1970, you'll understand that they were treated anything but white. Many of my students are often surprised to find out about the acts of discrimination and overt racism directed towards Latinos in the United States. In fact, LULAC, the oldest and largest U.S. Latino interest group, was founded due to the rampant hangings of Mexican-Americans in Texas and an incident where a Mexican-American child choked to death because she was not allowed to use a whites-only water fountain. Interestingly, LULAC was one of the first national organizations to recognize a role for Latino women through their creation of LULAC's Women's Councils. What is perhaps most interesting, though, is during the time of high discrimination, the Latino identity was invisible. Their poverty and discrimination was not actually officially recognized nor tracked until 1970, when the US Census placed this question on the 1970 census. It was an important step in the social construction of the term Latino. It read, is this person's origin or descent Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Central or South American, other Spanish, or no, none of these. The placement of this question on the census empowered and enshrined the Latino identity. This is not to say that the census flipped a switch and the identity was created, but the original organic social construction of what we understand today to be Latino or Hispanic was finally given formal recognition by the United States government.
0: Sanchez then discussed how the concept of race differs from ethnicity and how the lines between these concepts have started to blur in the Latino community.
2: So, in a discussion of power, why am I bringing this up? Because recall that the main difference between race and ethnicity is the ability to self-identify. To be the tiny kitty, in my three-year-old's terminology. So when the Latino population begins to feel that their identity is being assigned to them based on their phenotype or physical appearance, and built into that ascription process is a social construction of identity based on negative stereotypes, you take a vital power away from the Latino community. You might say, okay, Professor Sanchez, but we're here today to talk about the power of Latinas, woman power. Why is this important? Well, It's important because when asked, Latino women espouse stronger feelings of attachment to their Hispanic identity than Latino men, and they're more likely to say that their identity as Latinas is impactful on how they view themselves when compared to their male Latino counterparts. Scholars in sociology and political science have long discussed the gender roles that are unique to the Latino identity. They were referred to as Marianismo and machismo, The traditional role of the Latina woman is based in the Roman Catholic faith and the veneration of the Virgin Mary. Marianismo characterizes women as the selfless moral and spiritual center of the family. By contrast, machismo casts Latino men in the role of provider and protector with a strong sense of duty and honor, though they are often expected to be the economic head of household. This has been shifting during the last several decades. Latina women are increasingly sharing or taking over duties as the economic head of the household. You'll notice that the importance of family is implicit in each of these gender roles. Researchers in the 90s provided evidence that familialism is higher among Latino families than non-Latino whites, and it emphasizes the need of the family over the needs of the individual. Indeed, Marianismo makes explicit the valuation of selflessness or sacrifice. I'll show you evidence in a moment that suggests that Latina power lives in these folkways. But for now, it's important to understand that the identity of a Latina woman is strongly tied to the identity of her family. Critics of this characterization of Latina women are quick to state that sacrifice is not feminist or is simply another means of oppression. But as I'll show you, sacrifice or selflessness is a type of power, Uh, and it's willingly deployed because of this blurred line between personal identity and familial identity. It's a choice.
0: You're listening to a lecture by UA political scientist Lisa Sanchez as part of this year's UA Social and Behavioral Science Lecture Series. In discussing whether Latinas have power, Sanchez says when looking at traditional forms like legitimacy granted through political representation in government, the answer is no. There are few Latinas in political office, though candidates are increasing.
2: But when they do run, they are successful, what we would call quality candidates, engendering what's being identified as the Latina advantage. A colleague I respect actually joked that she was very excited to read Sonia Sotomayor's biography, but when she did, she couldn't get through it because she said it was too boring. She laughingly told me, I couldn't get through it. She did everything right. But this is the nature of being a Latina, wielding traditional power. You must be beyond reproach at all times. Do better. Be more prepared. Better dressed. Speak more effectively. Do it all. Contact theory suggests that this is a vital way around racial threat from minority groups. Being beyond reproach means that minorities themselves must ensure positive contact experiences with majority groups. But it leaves many Latinas open to imposter syndrome and microaggressions in the white and male-dominated spaces they occupy. Public health specialists find that these stressors lead to poor health outcomes. One of the most well-documented examples of this relationship is among black women. The more educated they are, the more unhealthy they are. And this is not as a result of personal choices, but as a result of accumulated stress. What's more is neurobiologists are finding that this stress might actually impact future generations through epigenetic changes to the DNA of minority populations. In other words, pressure to be models for their community literally imprints stress into the DNA of minority women, who then pass these genetic changes onto their children. Unfortunately, it doesn't get much better when we look at the social and economic demographics of Latinas in the masses. Latina-owned businesses account for 18% of all women-owned businesses in 2018. However, Latina and Black women see very low revenue from the process, revenue not commensurate with their activity in the small business world. Aside from business ownership, Latina occupational status is also really low. Latinas have higher representation than other women in service occupations, sales, and production occupations. Latinas have the highest wage gap of any female, racial, or ethnic group. Hispanic women make 54 cents for every dollar made by a white man in the United States. 54 cents. Perhaps more troubling is that in the United States we're extremely likely to interpret pay as a metric of self-worth. So here, society is sending Latinas a clear message that if money is equivalent to worth, they have less value. By now, I have built up a case that by traditional metrics of power such as political office, economic success, occupation and income, Latinas are underpowered. In terms of political participation or civic power, Latinas are much less likely to engage in politics than their male counterparts. So where does Latina power lie? Well, now let's get to that. This is my mom. She's the smartest, most generous woman I've ever known. She didn't go to college because she had me and my sisters. She could have had any occupation she wanted, but she CHOSE us. This is what Latina mothers have been doing. They've been holding up their children, pushing forward their girls. But what is so special about this is that Latina mothers are doing this everywhere. I frequently ask my classes for their wisdom on projects I'm working on, and this was no exception. I asked them what Latina power looked like to them. And to a man, each one relate a story just like mine. Moms who chose them, who chose to pave the way for them to go to college, for them to realize their dreams. I've heard recently that the future is female. Well, I'll add the future is Latina. We need to work to relieve social and economic discrimination of Latinos. The battle's not won yet. We need to reduce barriers to achievement. We need to celebrate women and Latinas and their unique voices in society.
0: That was UA political scientist Lisa Sanchez giving a lecture on Latina identity and power as part of this year's University of Arizona SBS lecture series. You can find a link to her full lecture and the rest of the series on our website. And that's the buzz for this week. Election Day is Tuesday. Visit our website to find links to all our election coverage and resources on where to vote. Then tune in to NPR 89.1 and AZPM News online Tuesday night to find all the election results and coverage. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.
2: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.